if you don't believe in yourself, nobody's going to believe in you for you, you know? You're listening to episode number 98 of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, a minimalist media project by Kaylee Reed. New episodes are released only on Self-Care Sundays, and we talk about everything from mental health to entrepreneurship to social media and, of course, self-care. Today's episode is an interview with Kristen Corpus, who is a freelance editor, writer, and musician based in Los Angeles. She's currently working as a social editor for Allure and regularly contributes to a number of high-profile national publications, including Elle, Glamour, Billboard, Hello Giggles, Business Insider, and many more. Kristen is also a copywriter for brands like Summer Fridays, Majuri, Nude Sticks, and a ghostwriter for many notable bloggers and influencers. She previously worked as a lifestyle staff writer for Elite Daily, in the charts department at Billboard, and on the social media team at Insider. She's covered both New York Fashion Week and Paris Haute Couture Week. She's interviewed a number of notable celebrities, including Hilary Duff, Shonda Rhimes, Dua Lipa, Kesha, Steve Madden, and many, many more. So basically, she has one of the coolest jobs ever. And all of this really happened for her in just the past few years. So in today's episode, we're talking about why she quit the music industry and how she transitioned to full-time editorial writer and content creator, how she moved to New York with no job and no backup plan, and what diversity in the entertainment and influencer industries looks like now. We also talk about her new platform, She's All That, which you guys will hear all about at the end of this episode. Now, before we get into today's episode, you guys know that I stopped taking sponsors for the show a while ago, and that was just a personal decision and preference. But what I do have is Patreon, which basically helps me fund the show. It's like my coffee fund. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month. And for that, you get some discounts on the merch store at selfcaresunday.co. But I'm also doing patron shout outs um, for the next few weeks, just as a thank you for everybody who has subscribed to my Patreon and who has contributed even a little amount to my coffee fund every month. So today I want to shout out Little and Sage. I'll link their Instagram in the show notes below. Allie, who's the owner of Little and Sage, is an illustrator out of Halifax, and she helps businesses and influencers create evergreen content through the power of her illustrations. So if you're looking for something custom, maybe it's Instagram highlights, maybe it's help on creating a custom presentation or branding elements for your website, Allie is a great resource for really cute custom illustrations that are going to make your business stand out. You can find Allie and hire her at littleandsage.com. And if you want to be the next small business that receives a shout out on the podcast, you can subscribe on my Patreon linked in the show notes for as little as $3 a month. Um, you have done so many cool things and there's so much that I want to talk to you about today, but maybe for those who don't know you or aren't familiar with you, can you start by just sharing a bit of your background and kind of a bit of your story on to how you got to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. I'll try to condense it as much as possible, but I am Kristen Corpus. I am a freelance editor, writer, and content creator 
based in Los Angeles. So I never thought that I would be doing what I do now. I grew up as a performer. I thought I was going to be singing and acting on Broadway, or I was going to have an artist career and I was going to manage myself. That's actually what I went to college to do. I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston and um, double majored in music business and performance and songwriting, thinking that I was going to have my own artist career and that I was going to perform my own music and I was going to manage myself. And I graduated and realized I didn't want to do that anymore. I just had had so many rough experiences as a performer and I just, I was kind of tired. Um, So I, I originally looked at it as a break, not that I wanted to separate myself from it completely, but I moved to New York with no plan, no money, no job, no anything, but just a desire to work in the music industry and hopefully do something that would bring me back to performing eventually. And after... I would say 200 job applications and I didn't wow. hear. Yeah. I, I heard back from billboard magazine and they were hiring a temp in their charts department, which is the department that puts together like the hot 100 and the billboard 200 every week. Um, and so I started working for them and I had no editorial experience or anything, but because of my background in music business, and I had done a few internships in the music industry um, and publishing and stuff, they thought of me as a good candidate. So I started working for them. I was helping them put the charts together every week. And then they started asking me to write editorial content to support the charts. And so then that's how I started writing. And at the time, they were just in need of help in a lot of different places. So I was covering concerts for them, um, and I was interviewing artists. And they were also at the time looking to build up their lifestyle vertical. So uh, they asked me if I was interested in writing about beauty and fashion. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know, because (laughs) I had no experience doing anything of the sort. But I realized that because I had been a performer my whole life, I had had to learn how to style myself and do my own makeup and learn about skincare so that my skin could recover after performances and stuff and after having to wear heavy makeup. So I was like, okay, well, I think I know a little bit about this. So sure, I'll give it a try. And I'm such a yes man. And so I gave it a try and it sort of became my thing. I covered New York Fashion Week for the first time with them. I interviewed everybody from Steve Madden to uh, BB Rexa. I interviewed a ton of people and realized that I loved this world of beauty and fashion. And so I decided that after my contract with them ended, that I was going to try to dive into that. And then I think a few months after my contract ended, I landed my first byline at Teen Vogue. And since then it's been sort of nonstop. And I now currently work um, as a freelance social editor for Allure. Um, And so I help oversee their entire social presence across different platforms. And I freelance write still for what seems like everybody at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have an incredible list of brands and publications that you've worked with. Um, I want to backtrack and I have a million questions for you, but I want to start with the music industry, because that's kind of where your background is and where you got into all of this and what it sounds like was kind of the catalyst for you getting into the kind of entertainment world now. Um, From a performer perspective or as somebody who like had dreams to be in the music industry at first, what was that turning point for you, I guess, that made you want to move on from that? Or maybe what are some of the misconceptions in that industry that not everybody is fully aware of? 
Yeah. Oh gosh, there are so many, but I, I, I think that, um, I think that everybody goes into the music industry thinking like, if you're a singer, if you're a talented singer and not to pat myself on the back, but if you're a talented singer and songwriter, that it'll just be easy, that everyone will see how talented you are. And, and if the, if you have a pedigree that people will just understand that, oh, this person just must be good because they went to this amazing school and they, um, you know, studied under these people and all this stuff. And it's not that simple. It, and I guess this could be said about every industry, but it's so complicated at the music industry. And um, I wouldn't say that there was one specific turning point, um, but I do, there were a couple things, I think. So first off, I have vocal damage that I've had since I was in eighth grade, I would say. I think that's when it was officially diagnosed, but I'd had it for longer. But, um, and I have these calluses on my vocal folds that were, that make it very difficult for me to sing regularly for an extended period of time. And by the time I graduated college, I had been gigging maybe three or four times a week, four hours a night, um, in bars and stuff. And it was very, very hard on my body and my voice. And so the first thing that I wanted when I finished school and effectively finished my gigs was to take a break. And I, I just needed my voice to, to, to heal. And so that was kind of the, the priority, I think. And, and then there were also just some like, I guess some things that I didn't love about working as a gigging musician, because, you know, you're not playing Madison Square Garden right off the bat. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're gigging in small bars. You're, you know, you're doing stuff that's an hour, two hours, three hours away from where you live just because, you know, it pays well and you can have a good setup there. But like as a female singer in what is often an all male band, there can be like a little bit, uh, not from the musicians, but from, from the patrons where, you know, they get a little handsy, they get inappropriate. And I had to deal with a lot of that because there's no separation literally between you mm. and your audience. And so they feel like they can, you know, do whatever they want with you. And you see the really ugly side of people when they're drunk. So that was a part of it too. And I just didn't necessarily love being in that environment all the time and kind of wanted a little bit of separation from that. And I also came to the, I think that things are a little bit different now, especially on a larger scale, but I think that in the micro communities of the music industry, there are still some misconceptions about what a female lead singer is supposed to look like. And I had this pretty long-term job. I think I was with them for two-ish years and um, I was gigging on and off for them. I would even come back after I'd moved to New York, I would come back to Boston to work for them. And it was like, it's a national restaurant chain and they have usually a female singer and a male singer. Um, one of them plays the piano and they perform together for an entire night in this like swanky steakhouse restaurant. And after I'd been doing this gig for two years, one of the managers who'd seen me perform plenty of times complained to upper management that they thought I was too fat to be the singer at the, the restaurant. So they fired me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, it sounds so horrible. And I feel like I've like moved past the initial shock of it. Obviously at the time it was devastating and super hurtful. And also, it also sucked to learn that that was the reason why I was fired, not because I was late or because I was doing a poor job or because they didn't like my voice. It was just because they thought I looked fat, but you know, such is the reality of the industry that, often relies on people's looks. And I think that, you know, there are so many artists now who are breaking those, those boundaries, but this was three years ago. And I feel like we've made so much progress in that time. So, so yeah, so it was just like another one of those things that added 
fuel to the fire of me wanting to take a step back. I still miss singing for sure, but I think that it was it was a good time for me to get out of it when I did. You you mentioned starting from nothing when you moved to New York. And mm. I find that really fascinating because you've grown so much and done so many amazing things in what I would consider a really short time frame. Wow. And I've listened, yeah, you're welcome. I've listened to a lot of um, podcasts and maybe you're in the same boat of you know female entrepreneurs who have done really amazing things, but you hear their startup story and sometimes it's like, oh, you know, um, my dad gave me a loan for $30,000 and I started this company or like, you know, people coming from a bit more of a privileged place. And so um, I'd love to just kind of like hear more of your come up story and like, how do you take that risk to move to New York without like a huge safety net? Because I think a lot of people are afraid to take those jumps when they're not sure, you know, where they can fall back on. Yeah, definitely. I, I will say I wasn't entirely alone. So my, my family has lived in New York since I was a sophomore in high school because my brother's an actor and he was on Broadway and did all these things. And so my parents moved him up to New York as a minor. Um, and he's, he's a year and a half younger than me. And so he was already living in New York when I, the entire time I was in college and then also when I graduated. So I moved in with him and I think that was the only safety net. I had like a tiny bit of savings from, from gigging and stuff. And that was what carried me through the first two months of me living in New York with no job. I I feel like there's a certain aspect of me that's half faith and half work ethic that is like, things will work themselves out because I know that I'm going to work hard enough until they do. And I also just have to like believe in something. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I think that there was like a sense of belief there that I was like, I know that I'm supposed to be in New York. I know that I'm supposed to make this happen and it's going to happen. Whatever I have to do to make it happen, it's going to happen. And so I kind of just, I, I had been working. And I think the, the roughest part was that I had been applying to jobs. I knew that I was finishing school, you know, and I had been applying to jobs and going back and forth between Boston and New York on, you know, the Chinatown bus or whatever and um, going to interviews and things. And I, I had applied to so many before I even graduated and made it through a couple rounds of interviews and just never heard back. So I think that was also my first rude awakening. I, I, I had this idea in my head that like you went to Berkeley, everyone wants to hire a Berkeley grad if you're in the music industry and you're going to have no problem at all finding a job. And that obviously turned out not to be true. And so I think it was one of those really good times for me to just figure out like, okay, this is, this is not as easy as it has seemed from afar for the last three years of your life that you've been in college. So, you know, buckle up and get it together, (laughs) you know? And, and yeah, and I think that there were definitely times when it was disheartening and there were definitely times when I was discouraged and I, I wanted to give up. But I think that, um, knowing that, you know, my parents, when I was a freshman in high school told me, if you don't get a full ride to college, we can't send you, you know? And I think just knowing that in the back of my head that I have nowhere to go, like I could always go home, but I would never be, you know, sorry to anyone who still lives in Tampa, Florida, but like <laughs> satisfied living in Tampa, Florida, you know, I would never be, I would never have been happy doing that. And so I think that like, if the only o- other option besides mm. pushing through and figuring it out, figuring it out was to go home with my tail between my legs, I knew that that, second option was not something that I wanted to do. So I 
yeah. So I think that it was just a matter of pushing through and, you know, having faith in myself that I would make it happen. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious if you believe in manifestation or if you're religious or if it's like fully faith in yourself that helped you get to where you are now. I think it's a mix of everything. I I don't think I've ever like specifically meditated on the idea of manifestation, but I grew up Catholic and I do believe in God. Um, and I believe in myself. And I think that that, that last part comes a lot from my parents was them always telling me that like, there was a lot of that Asian parent tough love. My parents are from the Philippines. So, you know, I get a lot of that first gen, um, you know, (laughs) wrapping your way through life kind of thing. Um, but besides that, I mean, they were always very encouraging and they always said like, you can do anything you put your mind to and what you put your mind to is being the best. (laughs) So (laughs) And, and and I think that sort of stuck with me. I always joke with my friends that I was like absolutely Hermione Granger when I was a kid. And I think now I've outgrown like the social awkwardness of that. But I still, to an extent, uh, have this this idea in my brain that I'm, you know, the best. And it's definitely not true anymore. Like when you're out of the, the microcosm that is your elementary school, <laughs> like I'm definitely not as smart as I thought I was. But um, I... I I feel like there's there's something that it's in my head that's like, you are the best. You can do this. And it's like my mini coach guiding me through things, even when I don't want to finish. So I, I think that, that uh, yeah, I think that there's, yeah, it's definitely a mix of things. I think there's a bit of, you know, faith in a higher power and also faith in, in me and my work ethic. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. Like if you don't believe in yourself, nobody's going to believe in you for you, you know? And I want to talk about your job applications when you moved to New York. So you said you applied to over 200 job applications. Talk about persistence um, and really like truly having faith in yourself. I'd love to hear any advice that you might have for young graduates or people who are maybe trying to shift careers um, or, you know, were forlowed because of COVID and are looking for like new opportunities. Did you learn anything from, you know, sending out so many resumes and maybe having a ton of interviews that, that you would take away from that experience? Um, I was constantly evolving my resume and as I would, there were some HR people who would give me feedback, um, which I'm super, super thankful for. Like they were like, this part's too long or this part is too, too wordy or, you know, they, they just give me little bits of feedback as they worked through my application and I'm sitting in front of them. Um, and I think that that was, that was super helpful. Um, at the time there weren't like freelancing females or, you know, the micro influencer group that you have, like there weren't these like resources or communities that existed at the time. But I think now there's so much that's available where you can pick the brains of people you don't even know personally. Um, and I think the hardest part, honestly, was that I had, I had majored in music business thinking that I would end up like working for a management company or working at a label or, or for a publisher or something. And I think that just being able to sell myself in that regard when I didn't have too much work experience, I'd done a couple internships, but like, besides that, I had no experience outside of school. And I think being able to sell myself was the hardest part, especially when I finished my, my, my contract at Billboard and was looking for, for work in editorial. I had no proof of concept, I guess you could say, like no proof that I would be able to work in 
uh, a newsroom outside of the fact that I had worked at Billboard totally by accident, you know? (laughs) So it was, it was a matter of just like continuing to hear feedback from people as I went through interviews and like, and I, at any chance that I got, if, if I didn't get a job, if I heard officially that I didn't get the job, I would ask them why, or if there was anything that I could work on. And a lot of people would just say, you know, we found someone who was better and that's obviously not helpful to you, but, but the people who did offer a little bit of feedback and said, you know, you know, these are the things that we were looking for and here is where you're lacking, um, sort of made me realize that like, okay, these are the places where I should explore a little bit more. Um, there were a couple of places that came back to me and said, we were looking for someone with a stronger social presence. So that's when I sort of decided mm-hmm. to really upping my Instagram content, but that was, that was kind of, um, it, it was like a lot of things. I feel like the reasons why I didn't get the jobs, but asking for feedback was, I think the biggest help, just even if I didn't make any official changes to my resume or, you know, building up a social presence takes time. I think that just having those things in the back of my mind moving forward was really, really helpful for me. Interesting. And even as you're talking about this, so I'm not super familiar with the writing world, editorial, anything like that. So you telling me that, you know, after Billboard, you had trouble securing like an editorial position, that to me is shocking because to me, I'm like, oh, but isn't Billboard like a big name? Like, wouldn't that help you get your foot in the door or like, how does that world work? I don't even know. I mean, I think just knowing that, that there are so many people who set out to be in this world and they did internships to reflect that, or they worked on their school newspaper. The first person who comes to mind is uh, Christina Rodolfo, who is now the, the beauty director at Women's Health Magazine. And she went to NYU. She's originally from New York, but she went to NYU. So she already lived in the city and she was interning every single semester, like every single semester, not just summer, every semester at a different publication, whether it was big or small or, you know, whatever. And across different, across different verticals, obviously she does beauty now, but she didn't always, and she did fashion and she did all these other things. And she, yeah. And so when there are candidates like her, (laughs) you you know, who spent their entire lives building up to working in editorial one day, you know, I kind of fell into it by accident. So there was, for me, I think that the biggest, the biggest struggle for someone looking to hire me was that I didn't really understand how a newsroom worked because even when I was at Billboard, I wasn't working on their editorial team. And the way that they, you know, separate Billboard is with edit, which is the magazine, which is .com. Um, and then there's the charts, which is completely separate. Um, so there's no, there's no like editorializing any of the data that comes through. It's purely like, it's, it's like clockwork, you know, every week the data comes in, they process the data, the charts go out. So that was kind of the biggest struggle for me was saying that like, yeah, here's my portfolio of writing that I did while I was at Billboard. I think also because music isn't a huge topic that publications cover outside of music publications. So like you might cover the the celebrity part of um, a musician's life. Like for example, when Kanye launched Wheezy or, or, sorry, Wheezy, Yeezy, (laughs) you know, and then Rihanna launched Fenty and like those, it's not a music specific thing, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it has a lifestyle slash celebrity mm-hmm. angle. That's what other publications will cover. But when you're a music specific publication, you talk about the nitty gritty of the music, which is what I ended up doing for a lot of my time at Billboard. And, you know, my lifestyle portfolio with them aside, pretty much all of my writing samples were about the industry. Like we're about trend driven data um, and about like 
interviewing an artist about their songwriting process. And like, yes, that can be interesting to people who aren't music nerds, but it, it doesn't really have a mass appeal. And so being able to tell people that, yes, I can break away from this sort of data driven and like interview focused style of writing and make it more casual, more conversational for these like, you know, the women's lifestyle publications that I write for now. Um, I think that was like the biggest sell was being able to be like, I can do this. Like I, I know how I can figure out how to make my writing fit this. Because I think, I think for me, at least when I was starting was that I was, I was a blank canvas. I had no editorial experience. I had no habits, good or bad. And so whenever a new publication wanted to work with me, I would sort of just adapt my voice to fit theirs. And I don't even know how this started. Like I had no interest in writing. If you had told me that I'd be writing for a living like five years ago, I would say, hell no. I don't know why I just fell into it. But I think I like storytelling and that's probably the performer side of me coming out. Yeah. And so I'm curious, I mean, a few things. One, you're verified on Instagram, which is so cool. How did that happen? Um, I got that when I was working, I was on staff um, for Elite Daily for a while. And I was one of their like regular writers who was doing a lot of interfacing with brands and with celebrities and with with like larger travel platforms because I was one of their travel staff writers. And, um, and so they wanted someone who was like, verified I think really? <laughs> I think that's that kind of sense. yeah so they were able to get that from me. also because I was promoting so much of their content on my own personal channels that they wanted me to have the swipe up so I think that that was like the main driver huh. so if you're verified with less than 10,000 followers you still get the swipe up yes exactly that's so cool yeah. huh, I had no idea yeah um, my other question around your socials so you mentioned like you really started putting more time into content creation and your page is gorgeous. Like your photos are all really beautiful. Once you started doing that more, like, did you see the, I guess you could say ROI in brands that wanted to work with you? Or was there like a correlation between your career growing, your social presence and brands that looked at you and they were like, oh, she's verified and she has these beautiful photos. She seems legit. Let's work with her. Yeah. Wow. That's that's so loaded, but that, wow, I've never even thought about the correlation between all of these things, but you're totally right. There, there definitely has to have been. Cause I think that, I mean, speaking as someone who often hires people now, or like asks people to work on projects with me or refers other people for projects that I can't take on myself. One of the first things I do when I'm scouting for a new writer is looking at their Instagram, which is horrible. I should be looking at the portfolio, <laughs> but there is a certain amount of like aesthetic savvy that goes into editorial, you know? And so, um, you know, and looking at who also follows them, like if they are active enough on socials, um, especially I would say this is pretty, pretty specific to like the women's lifestyle space. Like I think that all of the beauty fashion people, we all know each other. So I think that there's like, to an extent that that is this like little community within the overall larger editorial community. Cause I don't think anyone from the New York times gives a shit about your Instagram following. So, (laughs) but with, yeah, with this with this community that I've sort of fallen into, um, having social presence is important. And then, like, also, we I think that at least in our side of the industry, we kind of look at it as a networking tool too. Because like when I am you know learning about someone that I might eventually work with, whether it's you know them as my superior or me hiring them, there's a little bit of like, okay, who also follows you, kind of thing. Like who. Mm-hmm in my network also follows you. It's like our mini form of LinkedIn, you know, and we sort of use it as a way to sort of scout 
you know, who's also, oh, okay, these people who are also verified follow them. Okay, cool. So they're like... (laughs) But you know what? I do that too. You're so right. Like it's the first place that brands go when they're potentially looking to hire an influencer or a writer or an intern or, you know, me looking at hiring someone like I'm looking at their Instagram. I'm not looking at their LinkedIn. And I think that's just like maybe a generational thing. But I find your Instagram is like your personal portfolio now. Like you almost don't need to have a website because everything is on Instagram for the most part. Yeah. And, and like, for better or worse, I judge someone when they haven't posted on Instagram in three months. (laughs) Especially if you want to be in this industry, right? Like doing anything, content creation, writing, social, branding, marketing, like your own social platforms are the best way to showcase your work and what you can potentially do. And if you're trying to sell me and say like, oh, you can do that work for a client. Like if you're not doing it for yourself, how am I supposed to trust that you'll do it for the client? You know, that's kind of like the way that I think about it. Yeah. One of my friends, Bella Gerard, who's um, the fashion and lifestyle editor at Stylecaster, she um, had a pretty successful blog when she was in college. And she says like, nothing ever came of my blogging. I never really like got any sponsored campaigns or anything like that. But when I was applying to jobs, when I wanted to like write it, like write for magazines, you know, post, post grad, um, I always directed them to my blog and it was sort of like my living portfolio of the things that I would want to write about and the things that I was passionate about. And I've always carried that with me because I, you know, never blogged and I was, you know, obviously didn't intend to, to, to settle into this role that I'm in now, but I, that whenever people ask me for advice or like what they should do while they're in college, I always cite that back at them that, you know, Bella Mm -hmm. so many amazing jobs has worked for so many incredible companies since she graduated three years ago. And, you know, and she attributes a lot of that to the, to the success of her blog and the fact that she put so much time and effort and love into it. So like Instagram is just so, it's so weird, you know, that, that that's the first place that we turn to. We're not looking at someone's writing. We're looking at how they present themselves online. But I think that Instagram has like evolved past the just sharing funny photos of your friends, you know, mm-hmm. phase that it was in 2013. Um, and has sort of like, you know, become this place where you can put together like really curated, beautiful content and it's so much more professional than it used to be that, yeah, that the, the generational evolution of it has made it what it is now. I want to ask you about diversity in the industry because you shared that story of being fired a few years ago. And I'm curious, like, how much you've seen the industry, obviously music and and writing are a little bit separate, but I think like entertainment industry in general, influencer marketing, content creation, I kind of link them all together in a way because it's all media that people are consuming. How much have you seen that, you know, evolve? There's been a lot of push and talk for diversity, but I'm not always certain how well brands do in terms of walking the walk. So I'd love to hear your experience. Yeah, I think Well, okay. Speaking first from the editorial side, I think there have been incredible strides made and seeing how many people in my industry, writers and editors alike are so diverse, whether that's, you know, their race and ethnicity, whether it's, you know, if, whether or not they're an immigrant, their size, um, their age, you know, there are some really, really young editors and some a lot older editors. And, and both of those things are incredible. Like, I, I, I feel like from the editorial side, specifically in women's lifestyle, um, I'm really 
I'm really thrilled to see that there is so much diversity and seeing, you know, like Christina, who's Filipino is the women or the beauty director at women's health. And Maya Elena, um, is black and she's the beauty director at InStyle. And like, there's been so much change and, and those, both of those promotions happened within the last year. And so it's been, it's been so encouraging to see that the industry is shifting in this way where they want people who are at the helm of these publications to be diverse um, and to reflect their very diverse staff. Um, I think that in different industries, we still have a ways to go. Like with regards to music, I think I'm seeing a lot more, um, but there is sort of this emphasis on like really pretty people doing music, you know, like I feel like they're, if you have like an Instagram following and you're really hot and you're like that house <laughs> very LA, like you can have a music career, which sounds so sad because there are really talented people who look like that. But like, but I just, I, I feel like that there is a lot of that, you know, and it's not uncommon for me to be like looking at someone's Instagram profile and in their bio, it says singer songwriter, but then like all you see are bikini shots of them, you know, on their feed and you don't see about their music and I feel like that that's like a really common thing and so I don't know I, I am hoping for more change there and more development there I think with people like Lizzo who are so I hate this word but I will say it unapologetically themselves um mm-hmm. really in your face about you know their identity I think that that's so exciting and um she said this amazing thing on her her episode with David Letterman, like the, my next guest needs no introduction series. Um, she said something like just because I'm, I'm fat and I'm black, I'm deemed an activist or something like that. And then she's like, I wish that I could just be an activist because people love me for me and not just because I'm fat and black. So I think that there, because she's like one of the first, you know, like she's still like, she's still breaking these barriers of what can be considered a pop star. Um, I think that there are, there's still people are still going to refer to her in that way of like the first black, the first fat black, the mm-hmm. first, and only with time and with like the you know the inclusion of more people who look like her will that become less of a novelty. And so, and then I guess the third part of your question was like content creators, and I think the beauty of social media is that anybody can become a content creator, right? Like all you have to do is create content and create content that people resonate with to build a following. And so anyone can do that who looks however they look or, you know, is from wherever they're from. Anyone can do that. I think that where we're having issues is not accessibility, but rather the encouragement and like who's getting featured in brand campaigns, like who is being encouraged to continue creating content, who is being monetarily compensated for their content. And it's oftentimes not the people who look different than your average, like movie star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I think that's, that's different on a micro influencer level. I think that seeing people who are like at the 25 K and below status there are a lot of people who are working really hard and working with brands who love them and they have a very dedicated, loyal, engaged following, but I feel like they're not landing those like huge brand campaigns. And that's, I think a little sad and there's a lot of, a lot of progress that needs to be made there. I think that there's been a lot of barriers that have been broken for specifically for guys, like especially in the beauty space. I think it's really encouraging to see that it doesn't have to be just like a female led um, industry. And I love seeing guys put makeup on and like, especially like straight guys putting makeup on. I think that that is so cool. You know, that like, that there is so much 
uh, boundary breaking in, in, in that sense. But yeah, I think that to answer your question, I, I do hope that, that bigger brands will see that these micro influencers with a very diverse and engaged following are worth spending money on. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that that continues to evolve. I agree. I feel like 2020 has been a big wake-up call year for brands, um, getting you know a lot of pushback and flack for not being more diverse. And I'm starting to see some changes definitely over the past few months, but yeah. I still feel like it's too soon to tell like, has the industry really fully shifted or is this just like a temporary thing that people say that they care about? So I'm interested to see how that goes next year and like into the future. Speaking of the future, I want to talk about something that you just launched. She's all that. So exciting. Um, Will you tell us basically what is it? Why did you start it? And just give us the details on that. Yeah, for sure. I I feel like I touched on this a little bit earlier, but when I was starting out, I had no community, right? I had no, like, I had no people to ask for questions and there weren't all of these, you know, online resources of, of Facebook groups or whatever, of a collection of people who could help me and answer questions that I had pivoting and starting a new chapter in my life. And so I kind of want a place where, that can be possible for people where they can turn to this one website and find resources on like the art of pivoting. And, you know, these are the things that you need to know about getting into this industry. And right now it's really focused on editorial and content creation because that's what I know. But hopefully as the site grows and as like my eventual team grows, I would be able to have different parts of the website that focus on different kinds of things and, um, you know, breaking into whatever industry it may be. But yeah, so She's All That is a digital community. It's a resource. It is a place where people can go to ask questions and just general inspiration. I love, you know, like a Jenna Kutcher moment where (laughs) keep on digging your brightest goals or whatever. (laughs) I, I, I really love that stuff. And I, um, I always, I've always loved this idea of being able to like foster a community and find people who are like-minded and putting them together in a room. And so in this way, I think, especially now, since we're all feeling so far apart from each other, this is my way of sort of like creating that room um, where everyone can sort of gather and ask questions and, and learn more and be inspired by, you know, people who are doing it, quote, doing it in their field, you know? Um, And so Currently on the website, we have interviews with people from hairstylists to editors, um, and I have a few more on the docket. Like I have one who's a Broadway producer. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about the interview series, specifically because it shows that you can start from anywhere and end up where you are now. Um, And then there's going to be some blog posts that are specifically from me, like diaries from when I travel and things that I'm putting in my skincare routine and sort of that like lifestyle element that I love. And then of course, like the resources. So blog posts about where, you know, or how, how to make money or like just anything that you might have a question on specifically right now with regards to editorial and content creation. But yeah, as the site evolves, I hope that that also grows. I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. It's like a big ordeal to launch any type of project. And I think especially this year, which feels like a very 
like limiting year for a lot of people. It's been like a discouraging year for a lot of people. So to see people still like do things that are exciting and that are going to help like inspire and connect others, I think is really awesome. To wrap up the episode, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own self-care as an entrepreneur. I know you've mentioned skincare is a part of your routine. Um, What have been things that have like saved your sanity (laughs) as you've been navigating the world as a freelancer? Um, sleep. <laughs> I I actually am currently working on a piece about like the quality of sleep and the the health of sleep and and why sleeping and and good sleep quality is so important. Um, so I like I actually the piece is actually focusing on like how I upgraded my bedding, and so I like got parachute sheets and got a Tempur-Pedic mattress topper and like did the whole thing. And it's because I love sleep so much. <laughs> Me too, girl. I am so with you on that. Yeah. I, my friends always joke with me because I can sleep anywhere at any time and I sleep like a rock. Um, but because like I'm always mentally and physically drained from working. Um, but sleep is, I would say is like, yeah, outside of skincare, I think sleep is my biggest self-care tool. Like when my body tells me I need to shut down for a second, even if it's for a 20 minute nap, which I'm terrible at, I'm horrible at napping, but if I can nap, I'll nap. Um, so just anytime when I get a chance to recharge, close my eyes and let my brain shut off for a bit, it's, it's so valuable for me. 